dear listener, to a very, very special episode of The Good, The Pod, and The Ugly... A Bigger Boat, I think is what we're calling it. Man, It's I think this is the last one of these recording, and I've finally um, gotten the name right. Uh, this is a special episode. I am here with longtime listener and big fan of the show, loyal supporter, um, and also filmmaker and special effects extraordinaire. Would you say that's that's about right? Well, yeah, I definitely try to do that stuff. Uh, I'm not any good at it, but I go I go <laughs> at it full. No, you're a wizard. You can do anything with special effects. And um, that's why I wanted to get you on for Spielberg because, I mean, we've wanted to get you on the show for a long time, but I think this is the perfect, I think this is the perfect time because um, Spielberg, of course, is known for being a pioneer of visual effects. And that is something that I think is probably, would you say your area of expertise it's definitely the thing that I watch the most in movies when I'm watching a movie and also something where Spielberg's such a great example because he covers the whole range from like B level, you know, <laughs> to some of the best ever done. Yeah. Uh, so you get that great range. Cause I just love special effects in general. I, I love bad ones as much as I love good, actually more than I love good ones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I like people who who try things without with abandon and <laughs> you know Spielberg he always delivers on that. Yeah. He just he, he goes all in for it. So I really I you know my whole life I've grown up watching him, you know, uh animate little robots, uh you know, do stop motion, uh do all kinds of t- tricks. Uh so yeah, he's been a big inspiration to me. Well, great. Well, that's a refreshing voice to hear because we're, I mean, at least I kind of, I mean, I respect Spielberg for stuff like that, but I'm definitely a Spielberg hater. You know, everyone, especially of your generation, definitely the whole childhood influence is definitely a big thing with him and his movies in the 80s. We should probably introduce ourselves. I'm Jack, your normal host, and this is uh, John, our special guest here, my Uncle John. Yes, John here. Great to be here. Uh, as you said, long-time listener, first-time caller. Yep. <laughs> so I figured for this, I know that we want to... We're both big Cruise fans. We're big uh, Cruise apologists. Big cruise fans. Huge Cruise fans. <laughs> um, so I know we were going to focus maybe on his two films that he did with Spielberg a little bit, but I did want to go over kind of Spielberg's history, maybe with special effects from his first film all the way up to... Um, West Side Story, which is his last, which all of them have big special effects and uh, lots to discuss. But I just, I have a list here of sort of the ones that are maybe most iconic that I thought we could maybe go over in order. Oh, yeah, let's do that. You watched Duel, right? His first film? Yes. So that is extremely low budget, you know, you know, shot in the desert, uh, you know, a couple cast members, couple crew members. Um, very, very down to earth filmmaking, and it still had some big, bombastic, what you would think of as Spielbergian special effects in it for such a low budget film. Because the the, the truck, obviously, a lot of that stuff, um, getting out with the truck and spoilers, it crashing at the end, um, the car chases, everything. For that low of a budget, and for someone that was as inexperienced as him at the time, it's really amazing stuff. I think. Well, it also it sets up what 
whenever he's best, he's always following. Let me see if I'm right on this, but I think I have a theory for for when he's best. I think mm-hmm. Hook's actually a an outlier in this case. <laughs> but so I don't know what's going on with Hook. But okay, so Duel's perfect example. All right, so what do you do? You have one actor basically, and then you have a a monster, right? And yeah. the monster is a practical effect, and that tends to be where Spielberg's always best, right? So what yes. do they do? They built the truck, right? They Maybe they built a couple of them or something or just one. Uh, so he gets his friends together and they go build something that exists, right? It just looks great on camera. Mm. It makes noise and belches and they can move it around. And then they pick a location and then they just, that's where he excels. And then he can just kind of like pick the shot, you know, and and you hear him and he, he just kind of makes, he gets his toys together, right? And then he literally just makes the story up a lot of times as he goes. I mean, <laughs> Indiana Jones, I was watching, I watched those Indiana Jones making of documentaries, the great like VHS ones, you know, that came out at the time. And, and that's all he said. He's like, yeah, yeah, we just, you know, we kind of got out there and we had all these tools and then somebody said a funny line and we decided to go in this direction. You know, he just likes to go out and play with like a giant toy, you know? And I feel like that, like that jaws, right. They just built what they built the shark, I guess, you know, I think jaws is maybe, yeah. Jaws is the next one because um, that, that I wanted to talk about because that it's like, so much of that movie had to, I mean, the original idea for the movie was that you would see the shark the whole time. They didn't even come up with the whole concept of not showing the shark until the end, until the shark fucking broke. They only had one or two of those things. They called it Bruce. Right. And you can see the behind the scenes photos and the, yeah, there's tons of making of shit where it's just like, it didn't work. It looked terrible. So a lot of the movie they had to yeah play around with that and he had to hide it, which became the iconic thing of the movie is that you don't see the shark till the end. Yeah, and Duel, he's doing that a lot too because they're in the desert with a truck, right? And so you can't really hide anywhere, you know, in theory. Right. Then you watch the movie and, like, you're always, it's always like hiding behind a rock or like hiding, you know, you know, yeah, sneaking up behind him, even though it's this massive road, you know. And so he, he's really good. Yeah. You see his good qualities starting off right at the best, which is, you know, just show the best part of your monster. Don't overshow it. And you can see him making those decisions as he's making the movies too, right? He's like, I mean, this is what I do when I do special effects. I don't come up, I did, I used to try to come up with what I wanted it to look like, which doesn't work, right? Of course. you, You constantly are disappointed and you're trying to make it work and you're trying, you know, Uh, But now what I do is I take a look at what my tool can do in the time frame that I have and with the budget and with the people. And then I just try to show those best parts only. Right. Right. (laughs) And just like leave everything else out that doesn't look good. I I don't know if anyone listening or if anyone actually is going to listen to this, but it has attempted to do anything with filmmaking, but it's always get that expectation and disappointment of you have these grand ideas and you have this whole big story and then you go out and shoot it and probably 
15% of it works if you're lucky. And a lot of it is, you know, killing it in the editing bay, chopping it up and um, doing whatever works. And you can definitely see that, I think, Spielberg with his huge budget and can really do any movie he wants nowadays has really lost that touch of Indiana Jones. Perfect example. When I was a little kid, the story I always heard about Indiana Jones is that they were completely making up the story. It was just like these batshit insane ideas. Harrison Ford had the flu. So they had to do that, that, uh, that they had to scrap the fight scene and he just shoots the guy and that became the most iconic scene in the movie. (laughs) I didn't know that he had the flu. That's <laughs> you'd see that scene. He is he is sweating. He looks like he's on the verge of death. But yeah, I think Spielberg has really nowadays, even with his good stuff, kind of lost that scrappy touch that um, that those young filmmakers of that generation really had. Yeah, that's a good that's a good call. Okay, so where are we on the list? We did uh, Jaws. Yeah, dual Jaws. Yeah, I think we got those covered. Um, Close Encounters. Are you a fan of that one? Oh, I'm just such a huge fan of that one. You know, uh, I think Richard Dreyfuss just carries it all the way through. He just, he's kind of a Tom Cruise. He's sort of like channeling a Tom Cruise at that point. You know, he says that he's like Tom Cruise meets like Shia LaBeouf, you know, like (laughs) there's so many like Spielberg's best when he's filming like a middle-class family in a trashed mm. house with kids, you know, yep. that's why ET and, and close encounters are always such great movies because like they really, it really was like that in the seventies and eighties, you know, everybody's house was like that, just like full of all this like kitsch and brick a brack and uh, everybody's yelling at each other and it's a total chaos. That's how the seventies and eighties completely feel to me. So th- those are my favorite parts of that movie. That's a good point. And that's something we talk about a lot on this podcast is he's always channeled his um, early childhood and his, his issues that he had when he was growing up, you know, his dad abandoned them. They were poor or, you know, lower middle class living like that. So his movies back then were always channeling that. And that's what film, you know, all artists do best is channeling their trauma into something not only relatable, but um, consumable, beautiful, you know, art. And I think that that's something where getting richer and living years and years where everyone's praising you and you have all the money in the world. I think he's gotten away from that recently, even in his good movies like West Side Story, which is, I think, a really good one. Um, it looks it all looks too clean. They don't feel like real people. They feel like kind of mannequins. And yeah, I mean, E.T., oh my God, what a, what a, what a great look at a family there at Suburban Life. And Poltergeist, which he just produced, is exactly the same way. Yeah, when you see the plastic carton of milk, you know, come out of the fridge and like those little things, they just, they make the whole movie for me, you know. Of course. I mean, those are the little details that are special effects. I mean, pretty much everything you see in a movie is some sort of special effect. You know, when people think of special effects, it's always, you know, the big CGI sequences and the big practical effects. But yeah, everything in a movie is a special effect, I think. And in, in these ones, he definitely did that well, but the, the, I guess the big sequence in Close Encounters would be the ending with the spaceship, which, perfect, right? It looks amazing. Well, you've got, yeah, so you have a couple of things happening in Close Encounters that are great. Number one is the, you know, just really compelling, uh, you make the characters in the story so compelling. It, that's, I was watching the Jurassic Park documentary, which... 
you and I need today. We we need to really talk about Jurassic Park because yep. you know, absolutely. Um, I know that you hate it, and uh, <laughs> yeah. this is such a good chance for us to really kind of air our differences on okay. you know, some serious movies. I mean, <laughs> we're not talking about Prometheus or anything yet, but you know, like, oh, with with the world <laughs> of worlds and all, you know, we have a lot to talk about. Um, yeah. Jack and I disagree wonderfully on a bunch of movies here. So uh, audience, and we've discussed this in depth, so we'll have <laughs> some of that for you. But what, yeah, what he does in Close Encounters is there's like almost no spaceship scenes. There's very, very few of them. Most Ooh. of them are that classic ET style, which is you just shine lights at the camera and have fog. And so it looks like a massive spaceship, right? But there's nothing, right. it's just lights pointing at the camera, which we did a short, I did a short with some folks a few years ago and we did that. It looked great. We pointed six lights at the camera behind a garage door. We opened the garage door slowly, you know, and it looked like a spaceship landing. It was wow, gorgeous. Uh, the actual spaceship is the cheesiest looking thing in the world. It's so, I think they were kit bashing with that. Oh, what is that? That is that was the Star Wars trick where you go and buy a whole bunch of um, model spaceships, uh, you know, the kits, the mm -hmm. glue together kits, and then you just mix them all up. No way. So you just you just like grab like tons of, you know, sides and get, you know, you get like a handful of guns and you just glue them all on the side. And, you know, you just, you know. You just mix up wow. all the parts. You get a whole bunch of engines, and you get a. That's how most. Of, uh, I'm, I'm not sure who all does that, but that's kind of the classic trick. I've never done it because um, I haven't done a lot of practical effects, but I really want to. That's high, high on my list. Of oh yeah, I'm just googling it now just to get another look at it because it's actually it has been a while since I've seen the movie, but um, wow, it really still looks amazing though. I mean, it puts so much detail in there. Exactly. I mean, nowadays they would just do it all with CGI, especially Spielberg would. And, you know, that could, you know, that can look good. But um, I think I, I think we are in agreement about those kinds of, of spaceships back in the, the 70s. They always made them look so good. My favorite scene in the movie for special effects is there's a scene. It's Spielberg does Blue Hour, which is my favorite thing. He does it all the time. It's another reason why I love them. Those 15 minutes when in the morning and the evening when if you shoot with film, the sky turns this royal blue color, right? Mm. And all the lights start to glow and everything. And Spielberg will film a lot just in blue hour. It's, it's my favorite time to shoot too. And there's a blue hour scene up on a windy road where, you know, Richard Dreyfus is dragging that, you know, poor scared lady around. <laughs> <laughs> chase i'm not sure what's happening something's happening i don't know <laughs> and they're they're chasing the space aliens and it's just beautiful it's like they're on a a bend in the road the sky above is totally blue you can see lights off in the distance and then the aliens come in you know from far away and then zoom by you can't really see them uh it goes really fast and it's just this you know like beautiful thomas kincaid kind of oh scene. yeah it's really pretty he's so good at those so that i love that and they're just dots they're just like you know 
I don't know. I think they just animated it, I guess. That's like great. Animation or something. It's great. I mean, that's kind of like, interestingly enough, it's kind of like the trick he did with Jaws as well of having, you know, you get, you see someone get pulled under the water or you're from the shark's point of view. And that's what the shark is until the movie ends and close encounters. Like you're saying, there's little animated dots or lights behind the fog. And that's what the spaceship is until the end of the movie when you finally get that big reveal and it makes it all the more impactful. It also looks like the Dark City spaceship a little bit. It has a city on the bottom. So, you know, there could be a little genre crossing there. Who knows? Oh, What if it's the Dark City people? <laughs> oh, Dark City is a great movie. I think we're at Indiana Jones and the, uh, what's the first one called? Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And in Indiana Jones... I gave those another watch just to look at them. It's interesting how it's all practical effects, right? It's all like disappearing stairways and rotating fireplaces. And Mm. he's so good at that. The thing he's best at in first Indiana Jones, you know, which is the most Spielberg thing ever, probably (laughs) his most iconic effect is the, the rolling boulder, which I had totally forgot about. Oh yeah. I forgot about that too. Right? (laughs) Isn't that such a classic, like, it's completely practical. They made the boulder, right? Mm -hmm. They built the ramp. They made, you know, that it's all like clay crete, you know, (laughs) like it's all handmade. You know, the whole thing's handmade. It's dangerous too, right? If it failed, it would have killed him, I think. It was like a little sketchy. (laughs) That's the the element of... of filmmaking that I wouldn't say it's been lost because I don't think it has, but that was more prevalent in the seventies. Like you couldn't imagine today, anyone making a blockbuster. Well, actually maybe Mad Max Fury Road, but that's kind of an outlier, but a mainstream blockbuster for kids that just was completely made up as it went along. And there's just stunts that would, yeah, kill people that would have killed Harrison Ford, who is a huge movie star. If it had failed, it's so bizarre. And that's an iconic, children's movie too that has tons of blood yeah tons of blood (laughs) and nazis (laughs) (laughs) yeah not really heavy on special effects there's pretty much no green screen in it um uh it's all really done you know by hand and by uh with uh you know back rear great rear projection stuff cars and planes yeah, and then Indiana Jones, that was really his chance. Those three movies were his chance to really like learn his special effects techniques, obviously, oh. right? Because he, he starts off really simple, then he kind of overshoots with Temple of Doom, overshoots and undershoots at the same time, right? Temple of Doom is, was amazing to rewatch. I haven't seen it since I was probably like five or six, and yeah, I just... I, from my memory of it, I just remember it being all a little too much. And I think what you're saying is, is really true with those three films. You can kind of watch them and see Spielberg learning how to make a movie in real time. Cause he goes a bit too far with the second one, right? I think temple of doom is, doesn't have like, it's, it's way too much. The dance sequence and the monkey brains and all that. Yeah. I mean, it's really <laughs> overwhelming. <laughs> It's pretty amazing that it got made. I guess that's what they did in the in the eighties. 
<laughs> yeah, I wish that nowadays big directors like that, like the biggest directors in Hollywood, would have the opportunity to make stuff that is that batshit and is kind of a failure, maybe, but also objectively interesting to watch. He really is in his... I, <laughs> I feel like he he's like an Ed Wood under under the skin, you know. He's got this like B movie like desire, and this is what I want to talk to you about with War of the Worlds because like okay. I feel like like you aren't appreciating War of the Worlds as a B movie, you know, like as a mm. true like fifties you know monster stumbling towards the camera with woman screaming kind of B genuine B movie, you know. I get that in theory, and I love those kinds of movies. You know, um, I just watched, speaking of Ed Wood, Plan 9 from Outer Space, and I think that's amazing. I love those those kinds of films. I just, I think War of the Worlds, I just, I think it's so dark for no reason. It's so, like, you know, people screaming, but they're they're getting their blood drained out of them by these giant, horrifying monsters and maybe i i do accept that maybe i just don't like it because it scared me when i was a little kid well we're jumping ahead uh yeah we are sorry <laughs> okay okay we get, we'll we'll stay on track well don't get me started on spielberg movies that i don't like because i can talk about that for hours oh i totally we should do a separate podcast which is just us discussing movies that you don't like you know? let's do it let's do let's do a special we're doing a couple of specials Okay, good, because it would be good to include Prometheus, because I'd like to analyze all the the arc of the movies that you think are the worst movies ever, yeah. uh, because they're not. <laughs> <laughs> Prometheus <laughs> is the worst movie ever. <laughs> right, but it's not at all. Like, it's definitely not the worst. There are so many movies that are out there that exist that are so terrible. Have any of them made me as mad as Prometheus, though? I don't think no, so. No, they haven't. And that's what I want to see. I think that's okay. what we need. Them, is so, movies that, that make Jack it lose his mind. Let's do a special and let's do like three or four movies that you love and I hate. And let's Perfect. just record that. We talked a little, I think we talked about E.T. I mean, little person in a little rubber suit and then animatronics. It looks great. I just watched that movie. It's awesome. E.T.'s fun you know and once again pretty much no special effects in the movie right everybody's like it's such a great special effects movie but there's the bicycle scene right which is about 10 seconds long um (laughs) and looks very fake you know (laughs) so it's not (laughs) it's a great it's a great scene right it's not a great special effect and that's what's so great about et is they're great scenes you know the the alien himself um, looks disgusting. You know, it's compelling because it has giant eyes. It's the sort of like, it's basically like a, a fleshy version of, um, uh, there was that other 80s, it was a robot movie for, that kids loved. And it like assembled itself and like found a kid who helped it. And then he <laughs> helped all the neighbors or something can't remember what it's called, but it wow. looked exactly like E.T., only it had rubber tracks, you know, and electronics, and it said beep, beep, you know, phone home instead of E.T. phone home. But right. Weird. Big eyes, short. Everybody loves it. It's Yoda, right? <laughs> it is Yoda. If wow. you're making a, yeah, if you're making an alien movie, put it, put a little baby Yoda in there and ticket sales. 
Everyone goes crazy over it. Yeah. Everybody goes crazy over it. Even know? though the E.T. The e. is still like this weird, like wormy, slimy, fleshy looking little thing. Like when I did the podcast on E.T. with um, Cadence, she and I both agreed that it's such a horrifying design for a creature that's supposed to like, why didn't they make it like Baby Yoda? Like, why didn't they make it super cute? Like go the other direction. That's almost the true redeeming part of the movie is how disgusting the alien is, in my opinion. Well, it's I'm in agreement the there. <laughs> yeah, it looks like a you know a talking raisin, which you still need to see. <laughs> um, you still need to see Space Truckers, uh, so you can see the space pigs. Ooh. Which... Space Truckers would make a great double feature with Space Cowboys. <laughs> Those two, I think, are very similar. That would be a great double feature. Yeah, I gotta watch that. Um, yeah, both for late practical 90s. effects, crazy practical effects. You know, yeah. Um, that movie would—it's an amazing thing to watch because they didn't have CGI, and so they actually made all of that crazy stuff—the square wow. pigs and the truck-shaped, you know, spaceships and the the 1950s diner that orbits Jupiter and everything. They all made it. Oh it's wow. Great. Definitely got to do that. That's a that's a movie night right there. Space truckers, space cowboys, and then uh, yeah, ET once again, spaceship exactly the same, right? Just shine lights at the camera. Yep, and smoke, and then you see you finally see the ship at the end. Looks terrible, um, <laughs> and beautiful. I mean, it looks hand drawn. It's great. It's gorgeous. You know. Yeah, it looks like somebody doing a really beautiful oil pastel of a spaceship. You know. With blue sky, right? It's got the blue, blue hour. Yeah, you know? definitely. Yeah, it's right after sunset. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's those kinds of beautiful effects that's like, well, they couldn't have a James Cameron 2020 budget and animate everything computer generated perfectly over the course of several years. It was that constraint on filmmaking that brings out the best kind of artistic passion with someone that is as talented as Spielberg was at the time. When he had to use it less, he always used it better. Indiana Jones 2, we kind of talked about, I think. Yeah, though I would, you know, it's a very problematic movie. It's very awful to watch movie, but just for special effects, it's one of my favorite eras of that 80s, you know, lots of animation, over frame animation, hand mm-hmm. animation, right? Like the, the arc scene is really great that's all this hand-drawn smoke and then you know hand you know just really wonderful hand-drawn light which i think is very beautiful uh and you know the heart ripping out scene just some really really wonderful blood and and you know you like horror so you it's a horror movie you you should like it just as a horror movie i should i should give it another chance because I do remember when I was in like probably kindergarten staying home from school and watching it on DVD a couple times. I definitely did do that. So I think as a kid, I found a lot to appreciate there. And listeners of the podcast will know that I'm, I'm a big fan of blood in movies. I love movies with a bunch of blood. And this movie is actually so bloody that they had to invent the PG-13 rating. That's right. That's the movie <laughs> that they invented it for. Uh, yeah, very. I mean, a PG movie now is Frozen, and a PG movie back then had a scene of a guy ripping another guy's heart out and taking a bite of it or whatever. It's it's really interesting <laughs> to think about. 
<laughs> Indiana Jones 3, which is the one I've watched most recently, and I quite like it. And it's definitely, you know, for as an effects movie, I would consider it his best. Really? Um, wow. Just in terms of, so that movie uses effects in almost every scene, right? Yeah. All the way through. It's kind of a last of the Mohicans. It just starts and just runs all the way through, right? You know, <laughs> doesn't stop until the very end. Um, yeah. And it's, I mean, it's like a Buster Keaton movie. It's just like practical effect after practice. It's like the stairway collapses and then the fireplace <laughs> turns around and then we're off on it and everything, you know, we're, we're standing on a ledge that breaks, but it's, you know, all hydraulics, you know, on a stage set and everything. I mean, because they gave him basically an unlimited budget for that movie because of the success of the other two. Uh-huh. And then he had that whole team. So he didn't have to worry about the script, right? He didn't have to worry about every actor already knew exactly what to do, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, so all they focused on was those scenes. And I mean, the use of the tank, like to me, that's a really good special effect. I mean, just, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, 10 whole minutes of the movie is just this tank, World War One tank, which is like hilarious. And why there's a World War One tank in this World War sort of mid <laughs> pre-World War II movie, the reason why is just because he really loved that tank, you know. Of course. And he wanted it in the movie. It's they put it in the movie. And it's great. It's fantastic. It's the best the best part. And then those scenes, that final scene with the three t- challenges, you know, yeah. those are really solid, all hand-built practical effects. I know. And it's, it's 1989. And this is, I guess, still, yeah, pre-CGI or wide use of it, at least. And um, the collapsing, uh, the collapsing cave and the, the whole cave set, actually, and all the, the um, booby traps and, yeah, the tank and everything. It just has this I don't know, the handmade feel that it has just is so much more fun than kind of the digital environments that they build and play around with nowadays in a movie of a similar budget. It's like, it's so big and bombastic and crazy, but it somehow feels, I think because of the father-son dynamic, it almost feels a little toned down from the last movie, like Temple of Doom. Like it's bigger, but it almost feels like it's, it's less assaultive. It's so smooth. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't have bumps. It, it, it's Spielberg at his best, which is putting heart into a movie mm-hmm. that nobody has guts enough to put heart into, right? Because we're all too cool to put heart, and he's the only mm-hmm. one who's got heart. Well, there's only a few. There's only a few directors that, you know. And then pulling it off. Yeah. <laughs> and not, not making it totally stupid, like AI or always. <laughs> <laughs> So I never fault him for having a terrible movie because, like, I think the most ambitious thing to do in a movie is to put heart in it and not have it suck. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, th- I think he was good at that, at least. I don't know yeah. how good he is anymore. I don't know if you can. I mean, how that's the hardest thing to do. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, putting that, I mean, that's the main criticism of him now is like, it's, 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 I think overdone a little overstated that Spielberg is too sentimental. Like that's kind of a dull criticism. I think there's a lot more to, to make fun of him for. It's a full, it's a valid criticism when he doesn't pull it off, you know? Well, next we have a pretty good one. Um, Hook. Yeah. Right. 
<laughs> so like hook should have, you know, it was the same logistics challenge, right? It should be a great Spielberg movie, right? Like he should just be out building stuff all day long and like making the stairway collapse and putting in the hydraulics and making the rope that you swing on and like what every dumb trick that he uses over and over again. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And the ship is cool. I do like the ship. I have to say like, there's not a lot of really good ships that those scenes filmed on. I, 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 I like it a lot. Um, okay. But it's ter- it's terrible. It's just, it's such a terrible <laughs> It's pretty much unwatchable. Yeah. It's t- I, completely unwatchable. I always quote the Roger Ebert review because he said something to the effect that he, <laughs> this bland businessman with this horrible, you know, shitty life. And he's uh, transported to this magical realm where everything is completely brown and colorless and dull. And I think that's just such a, like, the whole movie, it just looks muddy. It's like, I respect the fact that they built all these huge sets. They built the whole town, all the Neverland stuff. It should, it's all practical and it should look amazing. But for some reason, it just looks drab and gross and kind of like a dilapidated playground or something. Yeah, I wonder if he just, you know, gave it his all in Indiana Jones and just, you know, didn't have any left. I don't know why he totally dropped the ball. And also Dustin Hoffman, like as the cap, right. Isn't he the, he's hook. Yeah. He, I just, I can't believe uh, that's what I was. All I did was just first time. I didn't realize it was him until same. And then I was like, what that's Dustin Hoffman under that wig. And then I went on YouTube and watched all of his scenes and was just like, what is he doing? What compelled him to do <laughs> the most horrible thing, you know, cause Robin Williams, like he can, he can be in some terrible movies. That's fine. He's made so many movies that, you know, we can all forgive him. Um, yep. But Dustin Hoffman, come on, man, what's going on here? This is ridiculous. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I had no idea it was him until we actually did the podcast on it. And you can listen back. I was pretty shocked that it was him. That's all I have to say. Yeah, yeah. there's not much. To, uh, yeah, I, and the next one is, is a good one um, to talk about. Uh, not for just special effects, but also because I don't like it. Jurassic Park. So you have to tell me. Why, okay, here, I'm going to guess why you don't like it. Okay. Great. Okay. From, Let's do this. <laughs> okay. We're going to, this is why these are the things that Jack doesn't like about the Spielberg, <laughs> which I have to say, you have been a real trooper for this. I, I didn't think this Spielberg season was going to go as long as it, as it does. And you know, oh, I I've, know. Been, I've been worried about you, you know, this is a lot <laughs> of Spielberg, you know, it is. So are, how are you, how are you holding up so far? You know, well, this uh, luckily um, Ken and Thomas, the other two hosts, agreed with me that we should probably cut it short and not watch every single movie. So, and they've also been very lenient on me being like, yeah, I saw this when I was five. So that's good enough to cover it. So it hasn't been that bad. And also there's been pleasant surprises like West side story and ET, which I both really liked. So, okay. So uh, the other thing is your hatred of Spielberg probably is feeding you and driving yes, you and motivating you. Right. So I think that's, <laughs> of course. Um, so the things that Jack doesn't like. Jack doesn't like Spielberg's grandiose revealing crane shots. Okay? Uh, and 
Jurassic Park is nothing but grandiose revealing crane shot after grandiose <laughs> revealing crane shot after grandiose. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going through it in my head. I'm like, yeah, it starts with the night scene of the jungle and backs out to right. this, you know, huge cage, you know. <laughs> yep. And there's the whole, like, yeah, that's all it is. Uh, so I think that is probably starting off. Um, uh, let's see, we've got cheesy kids and a distant father right off the bat. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're going to be jumping into uh, um, some some pretty cheesy territory, like right off. And he carries that all the way through the movie. Uh, constantly, like the dad has to decide about whether he's going to be a dad, <laughs> you know, yeah. the male figure. And then the kids have to get him, you know, to become a dad. Uh, so there's that great uh, cheesy family relationship. Yep. Let's see. Stylistically, you don't like his style. Uh, the kind of um, the look of his films. You're really anti that kind of glowing Spielberg look. Jurassic Park's not over the top on that, uh, but it's well. <laughs> well, he set the bar. So I because I watched uh, Crystal Skull and. Um, the glow filter that he uses on that movie, like all the way through it, it like vibrates, you know, out of the TV. It's, it's CGI sunlight for two and a half hours, just blaring into your eyes. It's awful. So after that, Jurassic Park is very toned down. Okay. Mostly what you're seeing is, you know, the stock graded, you know, film. Uh, let me see. Is there anything else? Maybe the, the cheesy scare effects, but you should like that. I don't know how how close uh, are you? What I, I think I think you're you're pretty you're pretty on 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 the dot there. Uh, that is all stuff I dislike about it, but continuously adding to that, I mean, I think the animatronic dinosaurs mixed with the CGI dinosaurs still looks fucking amazing. It's brilliant. It's innovative. It's just to get that out of the way. It's one of probably the best special effects that's ever been done in a movie just for not only how iconic it is, but how it changed the way you can make a film. Agreed. No qualms at that, but I hate the doctor character. Um, the, the <laughs> old kindly old man who I haven't read the book, but according to my dad, this is kind of a take I've stolen from him. So crediting him on this, that that character, what he should be, is like a horrible person that's doing something completely terrible, you know, messing with like, like Jeff Goldblum says, messing with evolution and with nature just to make a profit. But the film makes him seem it all, it's all played for jokes. He's a kindly old grandfather. He, you know, <laughs> it's ridiculous. And then the cherry on top for me is the scene where, okay, the grandfather, he's a terrible person. He has to be some kindly old saint, whatever that's bad, but I can deal with it. The cherry on top is when, the fucking T-Rex that is a T-Rex and should not have any, you know, I don't know, like emotional morals or values. At the end, he appears out of nowhere and saves the day. He kills the raptor who is the bad guy. So what Spielberg does is he takes a creature that is a fucking stupid animal that shouldn't know any better. And he says, no, there has to be a good guy and there has to be a bad guy. The T-Rex is the good guy. The raptor is the bad guy. And that to me is just ridiculous and I can't sanction it. It's buffoonery. Oh, uh, okay. I, I, I <laughs> yeah. All the criticisms I hear of Jurassic park are always like, you don't hear the footsteps at the end or there's like some continuity errors in the kitchen scene, which is dumb. 
I don't like the kitchen scene. And people are like, but it's a childhood favorite and I still love it. And I'm like, okay, that's great. I completely agree with that. Like there are movies that I, Mean Girls probably isn't a great movie, but I, it's a 10 out of 10 for me because I I loved it when I was a kid, you know, like there are movies like that. It's fine. Yeah. You can't fight that uh, sort of initial response, you know? So yeah, I can't really argue with you too much. I mean, 93 was pretty iconic for me and I I saw that in the theaters, you know, so yeah, I definitely have that baggage myself that I can't really shake around that. Yeah. And I think that's maybe one of the things that I dislike about Spielberg is I feel like his movies are a little bit manipulative into trying to be so sentimental that you can't let go of them for some like Jurassic park. I'm like, maybe that was what he was trying to do. And it makes me a little suspicious of his whole filmmaking style and ethos. But that's like, um, being an emotional hostage is like, that's, <laughs> that's what I love so much about him. And, uh, you know, what's so great about his movies. I think <laughs> I was looking at Jurassic park and the, the cinematographer Dean Kundi is actually like, I didn't realize how many films he's done, but he did all three back to the future movies. And he also did the thing and the original Halloween and Escape from New York, a bunch of Carpenter movies. So the cinematographer he worked with on Jurassic Park is great. I just don't know why I hate the visual style of that movie so much. Yeah, and that's what I, as we get more into these movies, you really have a thing about that kind of visual aesthetic, you know, Mm. and I'd love to tease that out some more. I didn't know this about um, Jurassic Park until watching a little short on YouTube last night, but they did something really weird, um, which they don't do anymore. And I really wish they did. So they made a robot, basically a, a posable dinosaur. So all, its only purpose is to you know pose the positions. But each joint has an actual sensor in it. And they relayed all that information into the computer because they were trying to do this crossover between motion capture and digital capture. And so they had their motion capture artist, who was the guy who did Star Wars, uh, did all the motion capture in Star Wars. And he actually manipulated this, you know, posable model. And so that's how they did their, their keying in their motion capture, which that's the thing, because that's what I do is CG. And I'll tell you this, like the hardest thing to do in CG is to frame animate natural motion. Okay. It's like CG just doesn't want to do it. Um, Cause CG has two default modes. One is linear in which it moves in a direct line from one frame to the next. Right. So if you, you know, you have the hand uh, next to the body and then you move it out towards the object and it's just going to go in a perfectly straight line. So it'll be very obvious. The other default it does something called a Bezier curve, and that's where it puts an averaging curve on everything it does. And that gives you that like nauseous, like swoopy sort of CGI. Right. And the thing that you see in Jurassic Park that you don't see in the other Jurassic Parks and in so much other stuff is you see that it really looks like it's stop motion animated. It has that kind of uh, real sort of hand feltness to it. And it, I mean, I think they really did that by hand. 
you know. I definitely respect the craft more than I actually like what's going on um, on screen and in the story. What about the other Jurassic Parks? Did you did you like any of them, or are you an anti dinosaur kind of person, or what's your what's your how do you vote on dinosaurs? Are you I am not anti dinosaur. I actually uh, this is one of the next ones was Jurassic Park: uh, The Lost World, the the second one, and I actually do love that movie. I'm a big fan of that one, and that one I think even does the CGI mixed with. Um, um, practical dinosaurs. I think it does it even better because you look at that sequence at the end of the T-Rex storming San Francisco, which is ridiculous. It's so fucking stupid, but it's so B movie in like you were saying, like almost a fifties, like, Oh no, a monster attacks, like kind of the blob or something kind of way that it, it totally works. And Jeff Goldblum is the main character. I mean, come on. How could you not? I don't understand why people don't love that movie more. Yeah, that's really high on my list. And we kind of posed a question to each other that I don't think we let the audience know, which is sort oh. of like, what caused, what what was Spielberg's real downfall when he transitioned from success in the 90s? Was it the fact that CGI came in? You know, was that his true downfall? And okay. I, like, I, I kind of have to agree with you, you know, because... That, you know, after Jurassic Park and all the constraints that he had to live under and sort of as he transitions into the new age, you know, which is sort of the where the world's minority report question. Like, mm. is it just the fact that he has to do everything in CGI that he's no longer able to make something? I mean, that's one of the most debated points, I think, about about Spielberg, because even Spielberg apologists and Spielberg fans will admit that there is some sort of drop or at least major change in quality of filmmaking from the 20th to the 21st century. And I think not only, not only is it CGI because there are plenty of directors that have transitioned from using practical effects to CGI um, in a really, uh, really good way. Like um, Michael Mann would be a great example. I mean, he totally uses tons of practical effects, but then he can do something like public enemies where he uses lots of, uh, CGI to create the illusion that it takes place um, in the early 1900s. Clint Eastwood's the same way. He's used CGI in very effective ways in some of his movies. So I don't, and I think Spielberg is a quality filmmaker. So it's not just that one thing. I think the other thing is probably money being distanced from oh, yeah. um, what how normal people live. And then also being distanced from scrappy filmmaking, from the idea that sometimes things just won't work out. If you have CGI combined with the fact that you can do whatever movie you want, I feel like he is going to have complete control over every project and you won't get great things like all the improv in Indiana Jones. Yeah, which is the real thing that carries it. And then, yeah, they kept saying, you know, if you're not looking directly at the special effect, then it's more compelling. And that's the trick used in Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park constantly is Mm. they're the characters are constantly distracting you to not look at the CGI, you know, right. The dinosaurs coming down on the, that's one of the, the the things they were talking about is like, they had to shoot the dinosaur head to toe in CGI when he's attacking the Jeep. So what did they do? Well, they, in real life, they crushed the Jeep to make it look like the dinosaur stood on it. And then also they put the kids in the Jeep. So you're, 
staring at the kids being crushed and you're not staring at the dinosaur. Whereas in War of the Worlds, you're just staring at the very badly made (laughs) (laughs) robots. Jurassic Park is such a weird example because it shouldn't still look as good as it does. And yeah, adding all those elements together, of course, it's the perfect mixture. And I think also another thing is we'll talk about AI in a minute, but I think him taking over a Stanley Kubrick project and making it undeniably worse, even though I haven't seen it, is another thing that was kind of like, just to me, it's like, man, that's something you don't do. Like, don't take over a Stanley Kubrick project and make it worse. And I have a conspiracy theory on this podcast that I've mentioned before that I think he killed him to take over the project. But <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, who knows what, what kind of, you know, uh, eyes wide shut, you know, dark stuff is happening all under the scenes that we ha- we have no idea about. I mean, we of haven't course. even gotten into these two Tom Cruise movies yet. So, <laughs> you know, like anytime he shows up, you know, there's some weird darkness. <laughs> of course. So, well, that, that does lead into AI. I haven't, have you seen AI? Uh, yeah, I don't really, I mean, AI is kind of like, yeah, I mean, it's so unwatchable. Like, at least i mean it's it's more unwatchable than hook to me wow and maybe that's a practical effect versus artificial effect i'm not sure i wouldn't i mean i wouldn't know either because i kind of refuse to watch it for this podcast i it does i mean i i don't think i've even seen a single frame from that movie so i would have no idea what it really looks like even yeah, I have a hard time caring about it at all enough to even give it like the time of day. Okay. Well, we can just jump right into the two two in a row, the Tom Cruise Spielberg collaborations. <laughs> yeah. Which I know is what you're really itching to talk about. Um I know. We could do a totally separate podcast just <laughs> Jack and John go at minority report. Yeah, Minority Pro and World of the Worlds, I think I think these are definitely not just because they star Tom Cruise and they came out in the same uh, sort of space of a couple years, but these are very two of a kind for Spielberg. They're very aesthetically similar, and I think I have a lot of the same problems with both of them. But yeah, what do you think about Minority Report? Well, okay, here's what I think about um, these two movies. So I see them, like, if I could have everybody watch them the way I would want. I would make them in black and white and put like a fifties kind of um, symphonic soundtrack to them, you know, really overly dramatic symphonic soundtrack. And then one would be done. War of the Worlds is a fifties B movie and Minority Report is a fifties film noir detective movie. They just, the space is just kind of like an aside, you know? And I think is that like, I think they're great. You know, a space detective movie, even though it's not space, right? It's, it's just the future or something. But yeah, uh, and, and this total B horror movie. Uh, but you know, I also have to just like preface that with the fact that whatever brainwashing or drugs that they administered to me, um, they work, and I just love Tom Cruise, and I'll watch any movie he's in, and I don't think he's ever done a bad movie. And I don't know why I think that. I don't think it's correct. 
I just, (laughs) I think I've been brainwashed, you know, like I think whatever subconscious, you know, thing put in my drink or something. (laughs) Well, there's a reason Tom Cruise is one of the biggest stars in the world. There's something magnetic about his smile and his, his eyes for sure. He, he's compelling because he doesn't seem like a real person. It all seems like a facade, but there's something very charming about him. It's very undeniable. Well, I'll start off with my arguments in favor of, um, first off, War of the Worlds. I Okay. The stupidest thing, granted, is that the ships are buried under the earth. I think that's, <laughs> that's really dumb. And apparently, when somebody told him that in, in the book, the ships came from outer space, he said, well, wouldn't it be funny if they, or wouldn't it be more interesting if they came from underground, right? <laughs> the answer is no, it would not the be. The answer is no. <laughs> um, okay, so that's the ships. But aside, and then this, the aliens apparently get shot from space underground into the ships through a lightning bolt. Okay. So that, that I have a bit of a hard time with. You know, it seems... <laughs> inefficient maybe right Um, also if they have that capacity you know maybe they would have couldn't they use this lightning bolt power for other they don't really use it anywhere else you know right i'm not really sure so they could maybe teleport out of the the ship with lightning right before they get killed if they're in danger but they don't do anything like that no they don't they don't have like a mothership and they don't okay so that's you know and why they chose to do it when they did um but the for War of the World specifically, the reason why I love it is because of Tom Cruise, and it starts right at the beginning. He's this, you know, terrible character, right? He's this bad dad, and he's got this daughter who uh, has the the panic attack issue and the asthma, mm. and she, you know, he has to take care of her. And that's so compelling right from the beginning because you have all this stuff happening. You have, you know, these those amazing beginning scenes when the ship bursts out of the ground, right. In this, you know, industrial neighborhood. Yeah. It looks like very Americana. It's, it's such a great shot. And Tom Cruise is just running, you know, and trying to escape from the city with his daughter. Then there's the scene where, you know, they go by and there's this jetliner that's just crashed and they're kind of like going through this destroyed, suburban neighborhood that should look totally normal, but it's got this you know, airplane that's like torn through all the houses. Right. And there's, I've been on that set at um, universal. They have a tour where you can go through that set with the crashed uh, plane and everything. And it is amazing. It's, I think it's one of the biggest sets ever built for a Hollywood production. It's, really it's cool. an amazing scene. Right. And that's practical, right? There's no CGI for that. So that's, yep. that's pretty good. Um, and then he takes her out to, you know, they try to escape out into the wilderness and there's that great scene where she has to go to the bathroom. And so she goes down to the river and then (laughs) she screams because she sees the body floating down the river. And so he Mm. runs down there and then (laughs) he's facing the river and she's facing him. And the whole river is choked with bodies and the bodies all, like, it's a really good scene. That's an iconic scene. I, I think 
that, yeah, that's a great scene. And that's something that's stuck with me and leads into like one of the things that I do like about the film is that it's incredibly bloody, not just violent, but there's lots of blood for a PG 13 movie. So um, that's not something you see anymore. You know, you can't, you really can't have blood in PG 13 movies nowadays. It's, it's this weird cultural thing in America where it's like, you know, these horrible, violent things happen in our country every day, but God forbid you show any amount of blood in a movie that's meant for kids. Um, so I think, I think he did a good job with that. And also kind of going back to his, like you're saying his suburban kind of family roots and um, a dad that isn't there for his kids when he should be. And those are the two things that I do like about it. But other than that, I think everything else is terrible. Well, I mean, okay, so that's pretty much it. I mean, it falls apart. (laughs) Right up into that point, you know, it's really good. And for me, that's enough. You know, I don't need the movie to be perfect all the way through. Like, that's a really good opening, you know. He had me for a good solid 25 minutes. (laughs) Yeah, the sound design and the look of the aliens is intimidating. I just almost seems like someone as old as him and as experienced as him at the time, I don't think should make something that kind of seems like it at points. It seems like it's made by a 14 year old and not for 14 year olds. Yeah. It's definitely like a kid playing with toys. Um, you know, he's like, pew, 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 and then they come over the mountain. <laughs> and then I, yeah, he's got the, you know, he has the Tom Cruise character in one hand and he's got some, you know, a line of these uh, Martians. Have you yeah. seen the original War of the, the 50s? I think there have been a few. There's the 50s one. That's kind of a classic. You know, the only other War of the Worlds media that I've consumed is I've listened to like that teleplay, that fake radio broadcast okay. that they had. Yeah, in the Orson Wells, right? Yeah. And people were freaking out because they thought it was real. And I think that's kind of funny that that happened ever. Um, so I've listened to that, but I really just have no interest. I mean, Martians are kind of freaky looking. I don't, I don't know. I don't like that. I am a big fan of War of the Worlds because of the book. Right. Um, and I'm a really big fan of pre-industrial science fiction. Mm. Um, and War of the Worlds is great because of when it was written, you know? Mm-hmm. So I kind of carry that too, which is like, you know, it was written, what, I don't even, I don't even know, was it 1900 or something? Uh, so it's pre-World War One, you know, pre-industrial, and it's such like a great vision of modern um, science fiction, but, but seen before, you know, because once you get to the 50s, it's like there's millions of science fiction paperbacks coming out all the time, and there's yep. thousands of B-movies, and there's all this stuff, right? But it's... Once you're before the 1950s, before World War II, there's almost no science fiction at all, you know? Right. Um, and the stuff that is, is usually pretty, uh, you know, it's like we go to another planet, but there's a jungle on the other planet and it's full of <laughs> animals. You know, it's very like terrestrial, you know, interpretations. And right. uh, War of the Worlds was like that real first movie or first book and then movie to really set up the modern you know, science fiction genre. And I just feel like it's such a great tribute to that because it is a dumb B movie, you know, <laughs> which the first one's a dumb B movie, you know, and the yeah. book is a dumb B book, you know? So, 
you know, as an adaptation of the book, I think it's, it's, I think it's a fine adaptation of the book. I think it's good. I just, with stuff like that, I, I might've said this earlier, but I almost wish it was dumber. Like I wish it wasn't as dark and trying to. Yes. It should be dumber. Yeah. It's not, that is true. It's not dumb enough to be truly dumb. Yeah. If Spiel, I, I think if Spielberg had used um, sort of almost like B-movie, like just said, no CGI, let's go all 80s, because the, the scenes that are practical, like I said, with the plane crash looks amazing. But if he just went all 80s or even 50s on it, made it black and white, like you said, and had, what if he had some sort of narration at the top that was like, news, aliens attack, you know, like really just leaned into that. Um, I think it would be great. So maybe I should watch the original movie because it kind of looks like it's more along those lines. I, if I were you yeah, watch the original book, movie, read the book. It's really short. It's like a hundred yeah. pages. You read it in maybe an hour, hour and a half. Nothing beats the book. The book gets that sense that the movie carries, which is everything happens really fast and it happens. Nobody really can keep up with what's happening. Things are happening faster than people realize. Um, and okay. it's even over before people realize it really carries you through from start to finish, like very quickly. Yeah. I am a big fan of that science fiction uh, pre or almost during the industrial revolution. Um, like, you know, Frankenstein, they always say it's like the first. Exactly. Yeah. That, but that, that, I mean, I love books like that. They're always very speedy. Um, and I think one of the strengths of Spielberg's movie is that at least for that first, that first opening bit, it, it starts right away. I mean, you get, you get that he's, you get the family dynamic and then the aliens attack. And I like that movies nowadays have yeah. these 20, 30 minute preambles that don't even matter, but yeah, it drags and it sucks and it's a little too scary. <laughs> and then my other question, I don't want to talk about this too long, but okay. What, what is the scene that's kind of like twisting the knife with sort of over that? Because you say bloody and it's, but the bloodiest stuff, like I'd say the hardest to watch parts and the parts that he should have either done more of or done less of is the like, the like gratuitous people trapped in the cages with the, with the blood knife coming for them, you know, like the blood sucking aliens and the blood knife or the, what is it like a blood tube that like shoots yep. out and like goes like into you and sucks all your blood out. Right. <laughs> there's a, there's a bunch of scenes where Tom Cruise is watching people getting picked up by the aliens and their bones are snapping and then they get a big needle stuck in them and it's sucking out all their blood. And I, I appreciate that being in a movie. And I think if you're trying to scare your audience, then scare them, make it a horrifying, horrifying movie. But I just think trying to walk the line between it's PG 13. It is for presumably a wider audience and either make it all. I, yeah. Either go all the way and make it completely horrifying rated R brutal or make it so silly that it doesn't even like you can laugh at it you know and i just think i don't know tiptoeing on on that line is very it doesn't feel like bold filmmaking or anything it feels like he's playing it very safe and also he's playing it very not safe too because since that's all um full green screen so that's all shot in you know, a soundstage studio, mm -hmm. you know, he's sitting there with this cup of coffee, like everybody shows up at nine, you know, there's no sets, there's no practical effects at all. Right. So he's in the worst part of his territory, you know, 
there's no improv, right? Because you have the CGI team already lined up. So it's already been storyboarded. Right. Everything is, you know, already locked. So there's zero improv. There's no physical object for anybody to respond to in reality. So all of the, you know, I mean, they were talking about that with Jurassic Park. They're like, you know, one of the most compelling things is the fact that these huge animatronic dinosaurs are really scary when they come right at you and they're an inch from your face. And right. the, the reality on the faces of the actors is something that you cannot reproduce at all. It's the, 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 the thing that he talks about nowadays is digital environments, which he's a big fan of. Of course, Ready Player One is pretty much completely all shot on green screen. And it's something that if you take a, a director that has a vision for it, like George Lucas, I think George Lucas did the best, maybe the best visual environments or a digital environments I've ever seen visually in like Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith, where everything's shot on a green screen. There's not a single real location but something about the aesthetic just, it feels like it's all of a piece. It's all kinetic. And Spielberg, I just think, for whatever reason, he doesn't do that as well. And it does feel fake. It feels artificial. And he overdoes it. He, he spends too much time, because that's the other Jurassic Park lesson, is you know when you do have the effect, don't point directly at it, number one, and use it as little as possible, number two. And that's, he's doing the opposite in War of the Worlds, where he's really focusing heavily, you know, you're staring directly at the tentacle as it's entering the body in the cage full of people, the blood, right. you know, you're just, and he holds it for a really long time, you know, and he does that sweeping fake digital camera effect, you know, that I can't stand. <laughs> I, th I think maybe the issue is he can't help himself with whatever it is, whether it's over sentimentality or if it's overuse of digital environments, green screen, not having any, you know, a practical monster for the characters to, for the actors to actually seem afraid of. I just think he can't help himself. And he's a literal, uh, I think he's a little overindulgent now and goes a little too far with everything. He's definitely overindulgent. Definitely yeah. <laughs> goes too far. Although ready player one's pretty good. I guess. Um, well, we'll get to that. That's on the list. <laughs> um, well, next is we talked a little about Minority Report, maybe, but um, you like that one too, right? Well, it has Tom Cruise in it. So. It has Tom Cruise, and he's a detective. I mean, <laughs> what's I don't understand what's wrong. It looks terrible visually. Yeah, it's unwatchable. You mean Tom Cruise looks terrible? He looks great. He's got <laughs> the steely eyes, and he's got that... He's got that chin and he kind of looks, he sort of looks at you, but he doesn't quite look at you. And you're wondering what right. he's thinking. And like, he has the, the Scientology smile. Is how the, the permanent Scientology smile. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I, I mean, I tried watching that one recently. I sat through the whole thing and it, it just, I think Janice Kaminsky, the way he shoots it, it looks, it has everything that I hate about a movie, which is, garbage CGI that you can't even really laugh at because it just hurts your eyes has CGI sunlight. It almost, it's so desaturated that it almost looks black and white. Um, I think the way, yeah, the way Spielberg shoots it and everything just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and you can see the decisions he's making too. Cause you know, I was watching a thing on uh, saving private Ryan and he's like, mm. yeah, we really wanted to give it kind of, you know, more of a vintage feel. So we took our film stock and we sent it for this like chemical process that pulls some of the 
color out of it. Right. Right. You know, well, that's like a real like physical process. You know, you've like taken the film and you've run it through a chemical. Like, right. And in Minority Report, he's like, hey, can we add the glow filter? <laughs> <laughs> and then can you add the desaturation filter? And then can you put a, you know, a vignette on it and put some green in yeah. there? And then he's like, he basically checks all of the, the boxes, you know, on the little side in Pro Tools and like ruin whatever it is. In. <laughs> uh, so it feels very much like, yeah, picked by uh, color grading by numbers. <laughs> and that's kind of the thing where like, if you're putting out two movies a year and they all have these huge budgets, it's kind of a thing if you can do it quickly like that and not put as much thought into it as one of his Oscar bait movies like Saving Private Ryan or Schindler's List even, then if 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 he can do it, then he will. It's a very much like you have the resources to do this fast and add everything in post. Let's shoot on a green screen. Let's not worry about, the, you know, the film stock or whatever. Well, and you know what's too bad is the part that he really put the most time and effort into in that movie was you know, they did this really complex wire setup for um, doing all of the scenes with the um, the jetpacks, you know? Um, oh, yeah. But it does, it looks fake. Like, yeah. it actually, all, it all looks like they just did it in a green screen. Like, it doesn't look, you don't see any of the work in it. Yeah. Number one. And number two, nothing in that movie makes me think that choosing jetpacks for your police force is a good idea. Like they all die. <laughs> it, seems right. like, it seems like a really easy way to just, everybody just kills themselves. <laughs> They're always flying into walls. You can set off the jetpack and someone will fly into a wall and die. And then, Getting around a room, like there's that scene where they're chasing Tom Cruise and they're trying to get around like a small. Why would you try to navigate a tiny bedroom with a jetpack? I was not sold on, <laughs> on jetpacks. But you still love the movie. Still love it. Yeah, that doesn't detract from the movie at all. No, none of those things you say detract from it. Totally yeah. fair. Because it's a it's a B film noir with Tom Cruise and mysterious stuff. Jumping across really slippery cars on the side of a building that are going fast. All that stuff. It's great. What do you think of bald Tom Cruise at the end when he has to shave his head? Oh, I'm always in favor of bald Tom Cruise. <laughs> I mean, the most famous bald Tom Cruise in the world, it was in Tropic Thunder. That was pretty great. And he had the huge, he had the prosthetic arms that they put on with all the <laughs> arm hair and the giant hands. And the huge belly. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the best Tom Cruise performances for sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think next we have really, this is when I think a general audience was maybe starting to accept that Spielberg had lost his touch with Indiana Jones for uh, kingdom of the crystal skull. Yeah, boy, I gave it my best, man. I really tried to watch it again, Really, you know, cause I saw it in the theater, you know, I tried to watch it in the theater too. Yeah. Yeah. It's just really, I mean, it's, it's definitely his worst thing he's done. I've got it. I mean, uh, it's so terrible mm. that it's so, I care so little about all the actors and yet like it should be great. Cause you know me, I'm such a huge Shia LaBeouf fan, you know, mm -hmm. like all the way through and he's completely in character, right? He's chatty. He's this, you know, like, uh, 
if I was going to pick an actor to play a young Marlon Brando, he is really, really not anywhere on the list at all. Right. And I think that's actually, it's funny. When I saw it, the initial, my initial response was, um, it looks horribly ugly. Like it's so glowing and the colors are so kind of like poppy rich. It's almost like makes me want to throw up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it just goes on too long. That was my initial thing. But when I watched it again, I couldn't stop. Like I couldn't get over the fact that Shia LaBeouf was trying to play young Marlon Brando. That right. was really the hardest thing for me to swallow. Right. <laughs> He's so nothing about him is like Brando is the, the, you know, overly quiet, overly aggressive, you know, um, his that has this like un, undeniable magnetic, you know, kind of sexual energy that's hidden under the surface. And Shia LaBeouf is like skinny and obnoxious <laughs> and fatty and like, and he has he's wearing Brando's hat the entire time, like that really right. stupid fifties uh, biker hat that makes him, you know, because like biker cu- culture you know, like really has changed a lot and stuff. And so it really looks strange and outdated. And um, yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't get over that. And I was so angry at Shia LaBeouf for, you know, letting me down in this performance, you know, after, you know, all of these stellar Transformers movies and just all this stuff that he's done, you know, really just be so let down. I wanted to talk about that specifically because speaking of Shia LaBeouf, he would redeem himself, I think just a couple years later or um, very similar time frame with uh, Transformers Dark of the Moon, which is for CGI, one of the best movies ever made and also just for entertainment value. Um, I think you and I have watched that movie together probably like three times. It's just, it's amazing. And Michael Bay, James Cameron, and Steven Spielberg, all three, you know, huge blockbuster filmmakers who made the transition from having to use only practical effects to using bombastic amounts of CGI. And Cameron and Bay, I don't know what it is about their films, but every Michael, you can look at the early Transformers movies from the same, you know, time frame that Minority Report's coming out. Minority Report looks like garbage now. It's unwatchable to me, at least. Um, and same with Crystal Skull, unwatchable. And then Transformers Dark of the Moon, it's like that movie looks real. You would show that to someone and they would really believe that robots are attacking Chicago and destroying it. Well, and you see the details that that Michael Bay cares about and the details that um, Steven Spielberg cares about. Because I really feel like it's in the details, you know, that, that carry it. So like, you know, say the nuclear explosion scene you know, in the opening of Crystal Skull. Spielberg really cares about, like, making sure he includes all of this, like, Americana. So he, like, really floods it with, you know, just all of these cars and all of this costume and all of these little, you know, they they have to go into a diner and have a fight in the diner. (laughs) You know, all this kind of back to the future stuff. Whereas, like, Michael Bay in Transformers, when they were doing the, they have this like, the Transformers make this sound, this like kind of like 
whirring clicking sound, mm. you know? And Michael Bay was working with the sound artist to create this sound. And they were overlaying tracks in Pro Tools. And they had uh, 9,999 tracks that they were overlaying to do this sound. And then Pro, oh my Tools, God. Pro Tools broke. And so they called, you know, the Pro Tools because you get a direct line when you're Michael Bay and they sent over the coders and everything to figure out what was going on. And they're like, you basically, did, we didn't know there was a limit, but apparently there's actually a limit. And you guys managed to hit it. You know, you just, nobody's ever tried to put 9,999 tracks in a pro tools. Thing. Oh my God. You know? So there's so much fine detail. It, like he really cares. Like when the, when the transformer hits the ground he wants the ground to shake the right amount. He wants the dust to come up. He wants the other cars to be knocked back by the shock wave that's invisible, you know, but it's moving the right speed. Like that's what he really, all he thinks about, you know, mm. as he's making that stuff. So it feels very real, you know, whereas Spielberg, there's not that, like he doesn't, he's not even thinking about that. Because if he was working with real, you know, he grew up working with real things that just did that naturally, right? You drop a, a giant car and it, it's going to shake and break everything and mm -hmm. everybody's going to, you know, jump back and all the stuff right. that's going to happen. He didn't have that in his bones the same way, I feel. Yeah, watching a Michael Bay movie, I mean, you can dismiss any of his movies for just being stupid, dumb schlock, but he really does... I mean, I think it's, it, it's the physics of... I forget what it's called, but the big snake monster robot that's eating the buildings and they're in the building and it's collapsing and they're sliding and the glass is shattering and everything. It looks like it's all moving the right speed. And it oh, you mean, you mean shockwave? Yeah, shockwave, yes. Shockwave, yes. Brilliant yeah. sequence. Just amazingly put so much detail. Every, you know, the machines, they get um, sliced open and there's like these little sprays of oil and steam that come out of them when they're getting killed by other transformers. It's so weird because it's, it should be cartoonish. Like you should almost have a Spielberg making a movie like this where it's overly sentimental. A guy makes friends with the robot. They're big cartoon um, creatures that are just made to sell toys. But then you have Bay doing it with this level of impeccable, impeccable detail in every single shot. And it makes them look real. It makes, it makes you think, yeah, there's really a transformer right there. Well, and talk about like, you know, um, like a father figure that knows how to like regulate his own emotions. I mean, Optimus Prime is just, you know, like way too stable of a father figure for, you know, Steven Spielberg to ever include in his movies. You know? <laughs> it's like the world's blowing up, you know, and Shia LaBeouf's freaking out and Optimus Prime is like calming him down and stuff, you know? Uh, he's like, you know, take it easy. He, he's like, I'm going to demonstrate some self-regulation, Shy. Like, this is how you handle this stuff. You know, he's a he really gives, good, inspiring gives, character. Yeah, he gives inspiring speeches that are good enough for you to want to get up and fight the, whatever the evil Autobots are called. Cameron is another one uh, that he, I mean, he made the Terminator, the original one, all practical effects, just looked amazing. And then he somehow was able to step it up with mixing the two for Titanic and Terminator two. And then now he's gone full CGI with the, I, it looks like the next avatar movie um, 
that he's putting out is completely 100% CGI, motion capture, green screens, digital environments and stuff. But I think somehow his stuff is more watchable than Spielberg's. That was a less compelling argument for Cameron, though, I have to say that you just made. Because like you mentioned a bunch of pre-CGI movies, you know, or sort of crossover CGI movies, right? Which is, you know, Terminator 2 is a great movie, but it's doing the same stuff. It's not looking directly at the CGI. It's using Mm -hmm. a lot of practical effects and stuff like that. And then Avatar is kind of the worst example of it. You know, have you seen the previews for the new Avatar? Like, are you you excited about it? I Are you think an Avatar fan? No, I, I think that the, the first movie is, it's like fine, but it's like, it's really hard on the eyes. I just think if you're comparing him directly to Spielberg's, if you're comparing Avatar and Ready Player One, even though Avatar came out years before, I think it's just uncomparable. I think Avatar looks miles better. They're both kind of unwatchable and very hard on the eyes, but I think Cameron is still better at it. Who would you, this is another question I had for you, is what are some examples that we can think of of successful CGI movies? Because the other question is, can you even make a good CGI movie? I mean, Transformers is a good example. Like, there are a few examples out there, but, like, there's not a lot. Is it just something that's not easy to do? Are there good examples? Um, Some things I was thinking of would be some of the classics, like Independence Day. That's bad oh. CGI, right? But it's a compelling movie. I like yep. it a lot. I don't Love mind it, yeah. any of the bad CGI. None of it bothers me. Um, I think it's a really successful movie. You know, any of that kind of like, you know, early destruction genre stuff, you know, is kind of a good example of that. But I was going to see if you could, if you had any that you thought of. Well, Independence Day is a great one. But then also with that, a lot of the reason that it's not completely you know, torture on your eyeballs and central nervous system is the fact that they did use so many practical effects and so much, so much of it is, you know, just scenes of people in an office smoking or in the white house or the Pentagon. And a lot of the the good destruction stuff and a lot of good spaceship stuff is a, is a great blend. Like the, the empire state building blowing up, that was a little model that they had built. You know, Mm. I just think something like Avatar Ready Player One, where it's a hundred percent CGI, mm-hmm. you can't. You can look at it. You can look directly at it. After two hours of it, your eye, your eyes are just going to hurt no matter what. Okay, well, I have to be frank because you know, on my list of two-hour-long, hundred percent CGI movies that I can look at for the whole thing and am never bored of, uh, Prometheus is top on that list. Ooh, you know what? Actually. Because it's very understated, you know, yeah. they never overdo it with the, I, I mean, just when they, you know, like that, that entry into the planet scene, you know, which is such a reminiscent of, you know, aliens, you know, the second alien movie with the drop into the planet and the discovery and everything. It's all very, very understated, you know, the monsters come very late in the movie and they're, right. they, they, you know, they're, you know, I mean, one of the greatest scenes is the you know cthulhu squid monster but he's like behind the door and just you can see the little beak through the window you know like uh, you know right very understated you know i think honestly i think that's the worst movie ever made but i think you are right about that and i would say maybe it's ridley ridley scott's another one a huge blockbuster Mm -hmm. filmmaker that did movies all practical and then made the transition over to cgi but also his new movie um House of Gucci, that's one where it's all CGI sunlight. It looks terrible. 
um, just on really hard on the eyes. So I don't even know if him as a filmmaker is as successful or if there's just something about that movie Prometheus that there is lots of movie magic to it where it's very well shot. I'm going to keep pushing on Prometheus. We'll do it. We'll do a rewatch. Um, for any listeners though, um, there's a, and also to answer that question that you posed earlier, there is a, an independent filmmaker named Jimmy Screamer Claus, I believe. And he, he does movies. He publishes them online. Um, and he, he's like a self-taught animator who had no idea how to animate anything, but he made a couple movies with his Xbox connect motion capture. So he was mocapping himself using his Xbox and then animating over that. And his movies are 100% computer animated, um, lots of CGI, lots of by hand animation. And they look hard to watch at first because they're very violently uncanny valley CGI, but they're actually, they're, they're great. They're, I, I would say you have to go almost the other direction where you just overlay so much CGI and so much terrible right. looking animation that it becomes the aesthetic. Oh, these look great. I'm going to check these out. Yeah. I think uh, Where the Blackbirds Fly, which everyone takes place in heaven, is a really good one. Is there anything else on our list for, you know, um, serious special effects? in? Because Tintin doesn't count, right? I mean, that's just all motion. Ooh, sure. that is a completely mocap animated movie, though. And that that's a great looking movie, I think. It's Isn't beautiful it? looking. <laughs> Yeah, I think no. I'm in, I'm on board with Tintin. You guys, 100%. okay. Um, uh, and he was smart because he just made it look like the comic book, so he's not using his kind of classic. Yep. Uh, the BFG is very Spielbergy lighting. What do you think about that? Have never watched it. Forgot it existed until last night when I was making this list. Um, I think it looks terrible. Yeah, because that would look that if you don't like that, that would be very. Yeah. Yeah. Spielbergy. And then Ready Player One, I know you're a big fan. I still haven't seen it. It just looks like garbage to me. It doesn't really feel like a Spielberg movie at all. It just kind of seems like a, a fun, dumb movie that somebody else made. Huh. <laughs> I, okay. So that's kind of I don't know if that's in favor or against it, but that's fair. My problem with him, you know, stealing from Stanley Kubrick and then possibly killing him too. Um, and then using the shining, recreating the shining blood elevator with CGI for ready player one. That just seems gross to me. I don't know. <laughs> it's really just, it's, it's pissing on the grave of the person you've already killed. <laughs> yeah, In that exactly. case, like you, you actually made a much more compelling argument <laughs> for me. And I, I didn't even think about it that way, but now, yeah, like a real, uh, you know, underhanded dig at the guy you murdered. I, that's a, that's a level of Spielberg that, uh, that I can, I can get behind. Yeah. And then it's all this, you know, the whole, you know, being the sweet guy, you know, emo is all just a front and he's really this, uh, uh, ruthless kind of Machiavellian um, <laughs> Game of Thrones. Uh, it's all about the Hollywood elite and directors. And he's, has he murdered anybody else? Do you think? Cause he pulled that one off so well, you know, I mean, was that the perfect murder? If he's that good, he, he couldn't resist, right. He would have to take somebody else. 
Well, David Lynch is going to be in his next movie, The Fablemans, so he might get Lynch next. Yeah, I could see Lynch because he wouldn't go for like a Bay. He wouldn't go for kind of a boring classic guy. No. It would be somebody that that he uh, secretly felt inferior to, right? <laughs> surfacely felt inferior to, and then had to murder them because uh, they made him feel bad about himself. Ooh, speaking of good use though of weird uncanny valley cgi lynch is a good one with twin peaks the return he uses so much cgi that just looks off and terrible and almost 90s in that matthew barney kind of way where it's like these weirdly animated like cubes floating around and stuff and the light isn't hitting them correctly um but his movies are very watchable still okay i haven't seen the new twin peaks all right i'm gonna put that on my list i will watch that but yeah, it's either going to be the, the cigarettes or Steven Spielberg that kills David Lynch. <laughs> One or the other. <laughs> okay, well, I think I think in, do you, unless you have any you know thoughts to wrap up or anything about Spielberg, I think we've kind of covered everything here. What do you think? Hey, I made my case, man. I made my case. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still not convinced. Yeah, so for any listeners, we'll definitely be on the lookout. Um, we're going to be wrapping up the Spielberg podcast in the next couple of weeks, I think after, because we're releasing this one next. So after this, I think we have three or four Spielberg podcast release, and then we're going to move on to a couple special episodes. We're going to cover some um, mystery directors, which we will unveil. And I guess we're going to do a special where we cover Prometheus and like, what, what other movies do I hate that you love? Uh, well, I mean, Jurassic Park and Prometheus are like the top Ooh, on the okay. list, you know, which, which I think is like a really good comparison. I, I'm curious just about like what it is that, uh, yeah, just teasing out what it is that, that totally drives you nuts about these these movies. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, be on the lookout for that. Those will come out soon. And you can find the social media at the Get the Pod and the Ugly on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, Gab, Parlor, Twitch. Listen to us wherever you're listening to this now. And uh, yeah, stay tuned. Thanks for listening. Good to have you, John, by the way. Forgot to thank you. Definitely. Definitely. Great to be here. <laughs>